Were you there when they crucified my Lord? A hymn of praise to Christ crucified. A song that was sung by not only famous Baptist civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr., but one which was recently played in our Good Friday service, which I attended for our Grace Yorktown Heights Lutheran Church, where I serve as the official student in my seminary process. The idea of the cross and of the redemptive power of the suffering of Jesus is, in some sense, the very heart of the Christian faith. Paul in the first century AD, only 20 years or so after the events of the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, says something quite potent and impossibly beautiful in his letter to the Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I no longer live to myself, but I live for the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. In 1 Corinthians, Paul declares quite plainly how the cross is a stumbling block and considered foolishness to many in the world. This was equally true according to James H. Cohn in his article, Bearing the Cross, Staring Down the Lynching Tree. For many, with whom Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. interacted in his fight for the rights of disenfranchised African Americans, this was in a period of time when the height of the civil rights movement saw many personalities rise up, calling for potential acts of violence and hatred. And yet Martin Luther King Jr. continually pointed to the cross of Jesus, as James H. Cohn points out, as a sign of peace and reconciliation. Cohn mentions in his article an incident where there was a threat on the house of Reverend King. This threat led to a part of the home being exposed literally to explosives while his wife and his young daughter were still inside. A crowd of frustrated, angry compatriots of King's wanted to give the bombers a taste of their own violent medicine. But King, raising his hand, said quite plainly to them that they had to offer love in exchange for the attacker's hatred. They had to show compassion in light of the evil that had been done. King, earlier, according to Cohn, had a crisis of faith. He prayed in his kitchen after hearing some preliminary word about this potential bombing that it could possibly lead to his death. And King heard the voice of Jesus tell him to preach the gospel, to remain standing up for righteousness. James H. Cohn points out very vigorously in his work. As this experience echoes that of Emmett Till's mother, who saw in the lynching of her son an opportunity for the redemptive power of Jesus to bring awareness to both white and African-American communities in the United States, the reality of evil and the need to bring it to light through social action. King would ultimately go to Memphis, where he would be assassinated. 
And there, the night before he was ultimately murdered, he gave that famous mountaintop speech that his people would see the promised land even if he would not make it there. And that he was not afraid of any man for, as he said, my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. King could do this because he, like Paul, was united intimately and personally, not merely academically like Reinhold Niebuhr, as Kuntz points out, but personally and intimately with the offering, the Eucharistic offering of Jesus as the atoning love of God on earth. Why is this unique in regards to Cone's theology that suffering is redemptive? There is currently a debate on some theological circles that want to run away from the idea of the redemptive suffering on the cross. Instead, to see it as simply a horrific tragedy, not something to be seen as in any sense bringing about a good because this would be essentially to affirm the red burning crosses of the Ku Klux Klan and the use of the cross simply as a means of demanding that marginalized groups remain silent rather than rising up against their oppressors. This is regrettably an argument that has a lot of roots, but Cohn rejects this argument, and I do too. Cohn recognizes that the power of the cross lies not in ignoring suffering or saying that suffering is okay or that suffering is something that ought to be tolerated or masochistically sought after, but instead, as King saw it, as the very meeting place where God encounters our unwoundedness and is joined to our own woundedness, and in doing so, through self-emptying love, redeems the world. King understood this because he himself was willing to face death, as Cohen's points out beautifully, on a regular basis. And he was willing to lay down his life, not merely for an abstract ideology or cause, but so that human beings in the image and likeness of God could live in peace. Cohn's quotes a wonderful contemporary voice who said that Jesus, like Martin Luther King Jr., was a troublemaker, and that one who lives the life of such a troublemaker is inevitably killed. Well, in some sense, this might seem controversial, but if you think of the overturning of the money changers and Jesus' proclamation that no one else can make, and I repeat, that no one else can make, the unique proclamation that Jesus makes that he is God inevitably makes him a troublemaker because the powers of his time, like the powers of our time, have a hard time grappling with the idea of Emmanuel, God with us particularly among the poorest of the poor, and particularly among the most marginalized. In some sense, Martin Luther King Jr.'s reference to the early church tradition that Simon of Cyrenian was a man of uh, a darker skin color, potentially even a black individual, one who 
looked more like Martin Luther King Jr., certainly a lot more like him than the me. Um, and the, the early church tradition that it was he who helped carry the cross points out a solidarity that the African-American community has, not just with Simon the Cyrene, who helped carry the cross, but also through with Jesus himself. A pastoral question is asked of me in light of this reading, one which I could find in the labyrinth of these words. And the question that comes to mind right off the bat is, will, will I, as a minister of Jesus Christ, will I also be willing, like James Cohen, heroically, and in a very, very, very uh, pale comparison to the great work of Martin Luther King Jr., but in, in poor imitation of King, will I also be willing to say that suffering is redemptive, that suffering transfigures, alchemizes, sorrow into the grace of God or where the grace of God is discovered. And will I be willing to do this by walking not as uh, Wright Hall Niebuhr is a wonderful theologian, by the way, um, but as an armchair theologian, as at least Cones is characterizing him. Well, not quite sure if that's fair, but we'll, we'll bracket that for a moment. Um, or will I do so as King, and as Cones clearly is in his own work, um, as one working from an experiential theology, a thought theology that's lived out. When I come to the bedside of a patient and a parishioner who is suffering, do I recognize that I am going up to Golgotha? When I come to a parishioner who is stigmatized for any reason because of their experience or because of their background, do I realize that I am approaching Christ and my neighbor? What you did unto the least of these brothers and sisters, Matthew 25 plainly states, you did also unto me. Will I actually walk away with that knowledge? I lost my eyesight at five and a half years old. And for me, suffering has accompanied me physically and in many other ways since my childhood. But in all of it, as much as I have found the crosses of my life heavy, I know because my God is the one who cries from the cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That there is no burden in my life, no darkness too deep, that God incarnate, Jesus Christ, hasn't already encountered or born. My Jesus understands my suffering intimately and personally. And because of that, because I know my God has bled, I have a profound, profound sense of the redemptive nature of what he has accomplished. That's my own personal take on it, but I look forward to offering more reflections soon. God bless.